Okay, uh, here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me pray. Lord God, this is such an important chapter, and I, I, um, man, I feel intimidated by it because of how important it is. So I'm, I'm really asking for your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us through it. Lord, why, why does David and his family matter to me today? Why? Really, I, I want to know. Why does the Davidic covenant mean so much for me right now? How does it heal me? How does it give me direction and guidance and insight? How does it do that? Lord, would you help us get through this and study this together? And Holy Spirit, would you guide us together through this passage? Because we want to hear from you. We're not here just to learn some more stuff. We want to draw close to you. And that's a little scary, but we trust that you are good and that you have only good things for us in this. So Lord, we pray that you'd please, 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 please guide us through. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm just gonna go through the first 17 verses, okay? Um, Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, uh, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent, And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that very same night, the uh, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, and more than all of this, David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And here's what I mean by that. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down down with your fathers, I will raise you up, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But 
my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke this to David. Okay, um, as I said in my prayer, this is a very, very important passage. Um, In this passage, we see that God uh, meets with David and makes with David, much like he did with Abraham about a thousand years previously, God cuts covenant with David here. Um, And in this chapter, we're going to see exactly what that means. And it's so important because it really shapes the rest of the way you would read the rest of the Old Testament, for sure. If you want to keep reading through the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets, and you want to understand all of their um, hyperlinks back to this passage, you won't understand it. You won't even see it. No doubt your eyes will, will just blow right by it unless you're familiar and understand with this pivotal point in the Scripture. Um, we've been studying through the life of David on Sunday mornings, and uh, David is the most um, developed and complex character in the Old Testament by far. Uh, the amount of pages dedicated to telling the story of David's 1 Samuel uh, 12 through 1 Kings chapter 2, um, they outnumber any other single person in the entire Bible except for Jesus. What's the big deal about David? In fact, the New Testament you won't understand the New Testament unless you understand that the, the New Testament, especially the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially the synoptics, the first three, they continually link Jesus to David. It's so important. So the Bible thinks that David's important in, in the grand redemptive historical plan of things. Uh, the Bible speaking today says David is still important today. Why? Why? Well, no David, no Jesus. And this passage will tell us why. Um, because God cuts covenant. A covenant, just to let you know, a covenant is a legal agreement between two parties designed to bring them together for a common purpose. That's what a covenant is. A covenant is a legal agreement between two parties designed to bridge a gap, to bring them together to accomplish a a purpose. And there are two kinds of covenants. There are what we call vertical covenants and there are what we call horizontal covenants. A horizontal covenant is probably, probably is what you think it is. It's between two people or between two families or between two tribes or between two nations, that kind of thing. But then we have vertical covenants like this one and it's between God and a person or God and a family or God and a nation or God and the world. And vertical covenants are usually pretty complicated because it means through a vertical covenant between God and a person or God and a family, God is doing something for the entire world. If you remember Abraham's covenant in Genesis chapter 12, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, comma, so that you will be a blessing. That's the idea. You're going to be a carrier of my covenant love to the world. Not you're going to be blessed, period, just for fun, just because I like you. I do like you, and I've chosen you. It's like what he's saying to David here. I, I kind of grabbed you from obscurity, watching the sheep. 
I've chosen you to be a carrier of my covenant love to everyone. So again, the Bible draws a straight line from you to, what, to this passage, to what God is saying to David. Because God cut covenant with David, you are literally sitting in, sitting in your seats here today. So, um, when God cut covenant with David, he had you in mind. This covenant is much more far-reaching than even David initially thought, and we're going to see this hopefully by the end of this chapter. In this chapter, we'll see that this covenant with David, that God offers us three things. As he cuts covenant with David, he's offering you three things. One, he's offering you a covenant that is permanent. If you're taking notes, you should write that down. God's covenant between you and him is a, he's offering you a permanent covenant. Secondly, he's offering you an unconditional covenant. It's unconditional. And thirdly, he's offering you a covenant that is eternal. He's offering you and I a permanent covenant, an unconditional covenant, and an eternal covenant, something that every, all three things are things that every human being needs. We need permanence. We need something unconditional, something with teeth in it. And we need something eternal. Let's, let's deal with the first one. This covenant is permanent. This is the first verse. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look at this. I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark still dwells in a tent. A house is something that's permanent. I'm settled here. I've got rest and the ark still dwells in a transient, it's housed in a tent that's meant to be taken down and gathered up and moved on and all of those types of things. Of course, this alludes to their history up to this point. Israel's history up to this point has been unsettling precisely because, partly because, um, they're moving all the time. Have you ever experienced maybe a little bit like this where you're, you know, things between one house to another house, things aren't quite lined up yet or you're living out of a suitcase for a while or you're on a long vacation and at some point you long for something permanent. You long for a drawer to permanently put your clothes in, right? You're just, okay, I'm done. It was fun for a while, but now I'm done. I need something that's more stable, something that's more dependable, that's exactly what he's talking about. Even though they were in the promised land, it is only now, under David's leadership, that they were finally established in the land. That's what we've been working on the last couple of weeks. We saw David finally take a unified Israel, not Judah versus the other 11, but a unified Israel came and said, we want you to be king over us the way God promised you. After that, the first thing that David did was establish a capital city, Jerusalem. After that, significantly, God understanding the redemptive arc of the entire plan, or excuse me, David understanding the redemptive arc of the entire plan, he knew that, okay, it's not right that God's people and God's presence, the ark, are separated. So his first, uh, second thing as king was to move the ark into the presence of God's people. That's how the Bible ends in Revelation 21. God is now with his people again. That is the great plot of the Bible. God making a way for you and me to dwell with him again. David got that. Okay, I'm going to get a capital and I'm going to move God's immediate, the representation of his presence in here. 
And now David is thinking, he's established, there's rest, uh, you know, his enemies are subdued, other nations, Gentile nations are sending him wood and stuff and, and resources to make the houses to fortify the city of David. This is at the height of David's blessing, of David's success and thereby Israel's success. And he says to himself, okay, we're established now, it's no longer appropriate for the ark to be, in a, to be housed in a tent because we're, we're in a different place now as a nation. We've realized some things. We're, mo- we're living into the promise that he made for us originally. So therefore, the ark should be permanent. Um, but now that Israel's established, they're not planning on going anywhere. David wants to build a house for God. But God fires back and says, look, David, that's sweet. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I'm going to build, the whole passage turns on this phrase, but I'm going to build you a house. And here's what I mean by that. It's going to, there's going to be this house that's going to be permanent because I'm going to make your family permanent. The children of Israel had longed for something permanent at this, from this point. And so they wanted, they, they had their eyes on land, they had their eyes on a place, on a location. But I, and I think every human soul longs for that too. But the problem is, when we establish ourselves on, on someplace, something here, life has a way of taking that stuff away. If you were to fast forward, we know that Solomon, the, the, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy is that Solomon builds the temple for, for Yahweh. It's this magnanimous, amazing event, very much like um, Moses up on the mountain and the, the glory cloud coming down uh, when he made the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. Solomon builds this temple and the glory of God fills the temple and it's this incredible, magnanimous event. But a few hundred years later, Babylon comes and destroys that temple. It's not so permanent. And Israel is devastated. During the time of Jesus, Jesus predicted that in the future, the second temple, the rebuilt temple, the the temple that Herod built, that would be destroyed by the Romans. So we've got this tension here where God God wants to build something permanent, but through a family and through a dynasty, not through something that uh, we would put our, our hope in here. And this goes back to what the, Bible call, what the Bible would say is probably the number one problem with the human heart. We tend to try to find our needs in things that go away or things that can be taken, including our identity, including our, self, our sense of psychological well-being. We tend, to, we tend to, to, and the Bible calls this idolatry, we tend to worship something that's temporal or transient or that can be taken away. And to the degree that we... Um, put the foundation, just to use builder language here, to the degree that we lay the foundation on a temporal thing or something that can be taken away, to that degree, you and I will be devastated when it is taken away. For example, if I put my hope in my career, if that is where my identity is and that is what I I acknowledge my self-worth in, then what is devastation than when that is taken away from me? when I lose my job. 
or when someone takes it away or when the market crashes or when whatever it might be. If I put my hope in a nation, what is devastation then when that nation declines or the leaders start doing what I would rather them not doing? My whole foundation is shook because I'm planting it here. The reality is the Bible says we're still, um, spiritually speaking, we're still in a wilderness. We're still, we're still wandering through. And the moment you start to die in a wilderness is the moment you start to set up shop here. <laughs> Wildernesses are fine as long as you keep going. We're heading for someone, for a, a city whose builder is God. So we wring our hands at what's going on in Seattle or we, we shrug our shoulders at what's happening with the culture or we get so dismayed that, oh, Christianity's losing the culture war or whatever, whatever, you want, whatever it might be. And to me, that's a pointer that maybe I've set up shop where I shouldn't. I'm looking for a place whose builder is God. When it comes to any relationship, something that we all long for is dependability. Every relationship needs that, especially the deep, intimate relationships. We need dependability. Uh, in the counseling world, we, we would call this trust. Every relationship needs and has a bank or a level of trust. And we're you would hope that you know, those closest to you would have the highest level of trust because you, you need a safe harbor to come home to. But God forbid, if that is where we put all of our hope, God forbid what happens when that person goes away or that person dies or that person betrays. Life has a way of taking stuff. And what's, what's hard about this is we live in a culture that has, that like, we don't like to talk about these types of things until they happen. And then we don't really know what to do. When I was a, uh, pastoring young people, there was this wonderful young woman, full of potential, senior in high school. She went away with her mother to tour one of the many colleges that had accepted her into their program. I think they went to Texas, and on the way back, this is not a bad omen, Christine, <laughs> but on the way back, they were struck by a semi-truck and died. She had all these plans. She had her whole life in front of her. But the reality is, welcome to church. <laughs> the reality is, we, none of, God does not owe us a thing. No one asked to be born. No one, asked, no one here is asking to, be breathe, to breathe. God gave that to you. So what happens is we lay our foundation on these plans I've got this future, and we don't even think, and like nobody in this room is scared right now. doesn't seem like it. Because you're assuming you're going to make it back to, to, at, to bed tonight. But no one's promised you that. No one's promised me that. And so when we lay our foundation on things that are not permanent, that are by nature transient and going away, what is, what is the, the definition of devastation then than when those things or those people are taken away? We need a covenant that's stronger. We need a covenant that's based on something that cannot go away. So when life 
comes and tears away at you, and it will, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I've been struck down, but I'm not crushed. I've been hurt, but I'm not destroyed. Christians, see this, this and so here's number one, here's why this matters for you. Per, the, the permanence of this covenant is what makes Christians tough, or is what ought to make Christians tough. The moment Christians forget to put our hope in something permanent, not going anywhere, the moment we forget, that's the moment we become weak. And when life comes, and it will, it will, and you'll suffer to some degree, maybe not as much as others, maybe more than others, if your, if your foundation is on a permanent covenant with God that's not going anywhere, that is what you cling to and you can be hurt but not destroyed. On the one hand, Christians don't walk around with a smile on their face and pervious to hurt. <laughs> that's not, you know, when you see a Christian that just thinks they have to put on this fake smile, you can, you can see someone that doesn't quite understand the power of this, of this covenant. No, no, no. Christians say, I'm really disappointed. Christians say, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Christians say, I have questions. Christians say, God, me and you need to have a talk. Christians say, what is, Christians like Job say, what's going on here? And yet, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see him on that day. See, if you want the secret to mental toughness, it is the Davidic covenant. Okay, secondly, we need a we need an unconditional covenant. Here's why. Let me read this to you. Moreover, the Lord declares to, the, to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house by my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is verse 14 if you're wanting to follow along. And I will be, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And here's the thing. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love, it's a, it's a word that David repeats over and over again in the Psalms, and the prophets pick it up. It's the word chesed in Hebrew, and it's basically the great, the, the unconditional, never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love of God. That's what this means. And this is where David got it. This is where it came. This is a promise that dawned on his heart. He said, even though you're going to screw up and so are your children, my steadfast love will not depart from him as, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Um, okay, David's at the height of his blessing. He's in a right relationship with God. Israel, because of this, Israel is aligned with their leader, David, and they're being blessed. This is a really magnanimous moment. David wants to bring the presence of God into people's lives, and yet after this point will be the most grievous sin will come from David. We'll get into it in a couple, a couple weeks, maybe a few years, but the right rate we're going. But, um, but it's famous. It's the famous fall of David. You remember it. Well, yeah, he's up on a rooftop. He should be out at war. He sees a woman bathing on the next rooftop. He uses his power to send for her. Remember, this is not a democracy. This is a monarchy, and it's, and it's, a, uh, it's a patriarchy. So he's got so much power. He calls to her. She comes to him. Her, 
husband, who's like this elite general Navy SEAL guy, is out fighting David's war. He sleeps with her. She sends word to him that she's become pregnant. It's just so bad. I mean, it's just level, layer after layer of David's fault here. This is after he's arguably, in, Old, in New Testament language, a Christian. Loves God. He calls Uriah back from the front. He tries to get, he, you know, he gets him rip-roaring drunk, sends him over to his house, hoping that he'll sleep with his wife so that David can say that the child is his. So much manipulation and effort is going into covering up this scandal. But Uriah has got so much character. He's got so much integrity. He sleeps outside of his house. And it's told David this, and he sends for Uriah. And he says, why didn't you go in and, you know, get it on with your wife? What's the deal? And he said, well, the, the troops are out there sleeping on the dirt my fellow soldiers are out there sleeping on the dirt in the cold. I couldn't even, I couldn't live with myself if I went and made merry with my wife. I, could, I couldn't do that. He's got more character than David, and David knows it, and David uses this man's character to kill him. David writes a note to Joab, the commander. Put Uriah in the front in the hottest part of the battle. And when it gets really hot, back away from him and let him die. And because David knew that Uriah on the way would not read the note, because he knew that his character was so ironclad, he sent it by his own hand. He sent his own death note by his own hand. Joab, who's become David's cleanup guy, reads the note executes the plan, and Uriah dies. And David mourns. Oh, it's so sad, you know? Uriah, such a good guy. Hmm, you know what I'll do? I'll take his wife to be my own. That way she's not destitute. And David plays the hero. You guys, if you were to, if I had a, if I could, if I could, you guys, uh, if you were here last week, you learned just how bad my computer skills are. I, try, I attempted to do something from here, and it failed. But if I could do like a chart, and put Saul's sin, whom God removed, according to this text, his steadfast love from. If I could line up Saul's sin and David's sin, you guys, it is not even a contest. It's not even a contest. This, let me just be straight with you. The story of First and Second Samuel is not Saul the bad king and David the good king. It is two wicked kings. One that, one that God has favored because of his humility and one that God has turned away from because of his pride. But when it comes to their sin, I think David takes the cake. It's evil stuff bubbling up in David's heart. And from that point forward, you guys, I hate to just, I'll just, well, maybe you should be braced for this. When we get to this point, David does not recover on the one hand, Nathan, this, this guy that we're introduced to here, he confronts David. You remember the story. He confronts him. And David, beautifully, he says, I've sinned before the Lord. He confesses it. No excuses. No spiritualizing like Saul. No anything. I've sinned before the Lord. It's two words in the Hebrew. 
It's a simple confession, but meaningful. And right away, God says, and I've put away your sin. But God did not put away the consequences of that sin. And from that point forward, I am sorry to say, David's life, his family, and his kingdom literally begin to unravel. Literally begin to unravel. At the end of this book, David will be back on the throne, but he will be a defeated, broken uh, man. A fraction of the man than when we first started. We're David fans. We hate to see that, but that's, that's the reality here. And then, for hundreds of years, a Davidic king takes the throne, and they're ba- they're, they're, there's evil kings. And here's, here's the, the, and we've gone over this before, here's the shock of the Bible to us. We like to think, oh, we're David. And the reason we like to think that, the reason a lot of us, we, we put ourselves in the David spot in the Bible is because we like to think that no matter what bad happens and whatever I do, you know what? I'll come out shining in the end. But the reality is, the Bible is trying to tell us that we are depraved that we are broken, that we are so sinful, not just in our deeds, but in our motives, that even our good things are permeated by this sin. We've been penetrated to every level with sin. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as what you could be. That's not what it means. But it means that it's permeated to every spot. And if you were to fertilize those things and water those things, you could be capable of just of, of the, the people that you despise the most. Um, there's this, uh, I, I'm gonna, I didn't write this down, but um, I was watching this interview of a World War II SS general that was over the concentration camps. They found him when he was in his 70s, and they put him before trial. He was hiding in some obscure place, I think in the hills of, I don't remember, but they found him, they recognized him, and he went to, to this war trial, and they had several folks that were in the prison camp that he was in charge of. And one of uh, those, those people, I can't remember his name, I kicked myself, because you can watch this on YouTube, actually, this, um, this court case. This Jewish man is sitting in the front, and they bring in the SS soldier, and this Jewish man begins to, un- at the sight of him, begins to uncontrollably weep. Like it takes over the energy in the courtroom. And afterwards, this interviewer wanted to interview this Jewish guy to find out what were you thinking? What was it that so moved you when you saw this killer come in? And the, the interviewer got what he did not expect. In fact, he clearly did not know what to do with the Jewish man's answer. He pulls him in. He's interviewing him. He says, what were you thinking when you saw this man that had no doubt murdered your friends, that had gone through all these things? And you know what he said? He said, when I saw him, I realized there's not much difference between me and him. And that's why I wept, because I'm just as bad. And the interviewer went, what, I don't know, what do you mean by that? Someone once said, the line of good and evil runs through every single person's heart. You might, not have, you might not have murdered anybody, but it doesn't mean you don't lack the potential. 
That's the biblical idea here, that that road rage that we experience, that resentment that we experience, if it were watered and fertilized the way the, the people in, the, in ISIS were watered and fertilized that sense of injustice, we, would be, we could do those very same things. We have it. And that's why Christianity stands apart. Christianity says, no, no, we, and this is what makes Christianity different than any other religion. Christianity says, no, we cannot earn our way to God. We cannot, somehow our goodness will not shine out on the other end. That's kind of the American dream Christianity. We're, you know, we're, we're good, and look, I've, I've, yes, I know all the doctrinal stuff, but look, I'm basically a good person. No, the Bible would say, no, no, we need a, we need a covenant that is permanent and unconditional. We need something that can handle your sin. We need some, ooh, sorry, we need something with grit. Because when you walk down the road, even after you're a Christian, look at David. This is after his height, he, he, this evil comes out within his heart. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said it's out of the heart that comes adultery and murder. This is David's heart that's bubbling. Something's coming out of a wound or a bubbling, festering thing out of David's heart that would cause this level of corruption. This is after he, he loves the Lord. When you uh, become a Christian, yes, you're saved, absolutely, but I will say the journey's just begun. God is forming and shaping you and he's leading you through what we call a sanctification process by which, I'm sorry to say, he reveals more sin. Anyone that's been walking with the Lord ardently for months or years knows this. Right when you think you've got it all. Right when you think, okay, the worst is behind. The Lord lovingly takes your hand and says, what about that over there? And you go, ooh, that's in me? He says, yeah. But there's a covenant that can handle it. It's unconditional. And this creates two things, or should create a few things in Christians that are following Jesus. One is, you shouldn't be surprised at your sin. This is a great, this is a great passage for those of you that are Christians that still struggle with stuff. This is a great thing to look at here. This is super encouraging. You're in great company with David. You, have, you don't need, you can be grieved at your sin, but you shouldn't be shocked at your sin, right? When we hear about leaders that fall, Christian leaders that fall, a lot of them are falling recently. I'd say be grieved, but don't be shocked. We, you know, when we, when, when we read articles that say, well, what's with this, in this century, so many Christian leaders are falling. Actually, our Bible is chocked full with Christian Followers of God that fall and fall, I mean, like, fall, like, crash. This is, this is not, you know, David, uh, you know, stubbing his toe and saying a curse word, you know. <laughs> this is a tragic, like, this would be, if he, was, if he was our president, this would be in the papers, this would be, I mean, imagine the press from this scandalous event. And yet, so God says, all you people are like this. All you people are like this. We all are confronted with our sin. And therefore, because of that, we need a covenant 
that is unconditional, that can handle it. Otherwise, our relationship with God would be what? It'd be just up and down. It'd be this cycle of, oh, I messed up. I come back and, I, you know, it, I used to be like that in my youth. I would be good with God as long as I, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for getting me thus far. But I'm about to get out of bed. <laughs> and from that, from the moment my feet hit the ground, I'm going to start making mistakes. <laughs> thank you that there's a love that can hold me that can walk through that with me, that I don't have to be insecure about that. I used to be. Every time I would sin, I would just be in turmoil and go back and I'd get saved all over again. I'd come forward for another, I mean, if I could tell you how many altar calls I've been forward to with tears and sincerity. But a lot of it was because I had this view of God that I'm good until, I'm, until I mess up the next time. And then he forgives me, oh my gosh, it's so good. And then I mess up again and then he forgives me Oh, gosh, how good is it where he says, no, Mike, you need, a, you need a covenant that's unconditional. It's permanent. It's steady. It's stable. You don't have to worry about it, and it's unconditional. It can handle the worst you got. Romans 5 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I hope that brings you a blessing and that relieves you. Thirdly, he, we need an eternal covenant that he gives to David. He says in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the word. He says it three times. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love I will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Up to this point, an interesting factoid for you, is up to this point, an idea that has not been developed much in the Old Testament is the idea of eternal life. Can we still be friends? I'm not saying that there is no eternal life, and I'm not saying that it wasn't there. I'm just saying it has not been emphasized much. Certainly, there is an idea of the afterlife. You, you think of uh, uh, when Saul brought up Samuel, brought up the spirit of Samuel and consorted with him with, a, with this medium, that crazy story in uh, 1 Samuel 29. But the idea of living forever has not been quite in fact, you hear a lot more uh, of an idea of things like, um, I am a flower quickly fading. You hear that kind of thing. I'm here today. I'm gone tomorrow. My life is like a vapor. It's here and it's gone. Um, and it, here, is one of the, the, here is one of the greatest or one of the landmarks in the Old Testament where God starts speaking about an eternal person, an eternal family, one that will not go away, one that will last forever. Um, I, don't know if you've, I don't know if you've read the stats recently. The, the numbers have just come out, and it's staggering. Ten out of ten people are dying these days. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's like corny. I know, it's corny. Um, and yet God tells this family, David, you, your family will be an everlasting, eternal family. 
death is something that comes for us all and that we, in fact, the Bible even ascribes a certain amount of power to understanding that your days on this earth are limited. David here, later penned, teach me to number my days. There's a power in it. Um, like I said earlier, part of our problem is that we kind of think we're going to live forever. That's kind of a, that comes with a backlash to it. Um, if, are anybody here familiar with Greek mythology? Okay, a little bit. Um, uh, Prometheus. Prometheus, had a, he, he felt bad for mankind because mankind, every person had a date of when they were going to die. They could live by the, by the calendar. We're going to die on this time, or every person felt that way, and the gods wouldn't share their technology with mankind, so we couldn't progress, and mankind had no ambition. So as the story goes, Prometheus, um, behind Zeus's back, gave three things to mankind. He took away their knowledge of when they were going to die, first of all. He gave them, he put ambition in their souls, and thirdly, he gave them fire, or technology. And the result of this was that mankind began to live past their limits. They had ambition. They thought they were eternal. They started to act more and more godlike. And with this, they had technology to bake bricks and to build cities and to think, look at what we can do, and became full of hubris and full of pride. And it became their downfall. Man, if there was never a more uh, apt omen for, for the West... First of all, we, this is, so we're in Lent right now. We're marching up to Easter. Lent, primarily, we remember our mortality. We say with David, teach me to number my days, O God. Because think about this. If, if you knew that today you were going to die, what would you say to people that you wouldn't say otherwise? What would you say to people today that you kept in maybe because of your pride or your ego? Maybe you'd say to them, hey, I'm sorry, I blew it, I hurt you. Or maybe you'd say, hey, I want you to know, and I wasn't going to say this, but now I will, I admire you for this reason and this reason and this reason. I think you're a really good person. I love when you do this. You're, you have integrity. What would you do, how would it change education? What would it do with knowledge if you knew you weren't going to take it into a career? What would you do with this message here? Would you keep it in or would you give it out? Would you talk about it more? Would you be more amazed at the things that are going on in life around you? Would you be more amazed at the things going on around you? And yet at the same time, we have a longing in us. There's the rub. We have a longing in us to live, to live like that forever. How is this fulfilled? Well, as you know, after David... Israel was not permanent. They left the land. The temple was, was burned down. They were carried off into uh, abject slavery again, into the land of Babylon. And it was not permanent because of their sin. I mean, read the prophets. It's very clear. I'm sending Babylon because of 400 years of chronic rebellion. 400 years of disobedience, 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 disobedience. I'm sending Babylon. The day of the Lord is coming. 
And people keep dying. Disease keeps happening. How does this work? Then you get to Malachi, the, the, the last book, where there, the day of the Lord, it, it meant a day of judgment in all the, the minor prophets before this, but Malachi adds something to this idea. He says the day of the Lord is a time of judgment, but it's also a time when this, the faithful remnant will rejoice. So for some it's ooh, scary, depending on what side you fall on. For some it's super scary. For others it's like, wow, this is great. And the day of the Lord, he says, will be the time where God himself personally shows up. Personally, in other words, I'm not sending an army this time. I'm coming. I'm coming. And then he says, and I'm going to send my prophet Elijah before me to prepare the way. And then you get to Matthew. And Matthew announces the coming of the Messiah. First words out of his mouth. The genealogy of Jesus, a genealogy is a chronological order of your parents. You know who he takes out of that order and links Jesus to first, before Abraham? A chronology of Jesus, the son of David. And then he goes back to Abraham. In other words, David fulfills this covenant, or Jesus fulfills this covenant in David. He is the descendant. The book of Hebrews in chapter 9 says that Jesus becomes the temple. His body is the place where heaven and earth meet. That's what a temple is. That's what a tabernacle is. It breaches the gap. It's where heaven and earth come together. It's where man and God can commune. It was a tent. Well, it was a garden. It, it progressed to a tent. It progressed to a temple. And then in the New Testament, it became a person. In Jesus, his full humanity and his full divinity is literally the place where man and God meet. And then when he was on the cross, his body was rent, and symbolically, but really, the, the, uh, the uh, veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. What was it symbolizing? He's the new temple. He's the new place where God and man meet. This is where we come. This is why we do communion every Sunday because Jesus is the David and he's permanent. Hebrews says that he's not going anywhere. Other priests had to sacrifice for their own sins first. Then they died. So there was a lot of times a gap between raising up the next priest. Jesus died once and for all. He's always there. He's permanent. He is what we anchor our identity to. And if you don't, you're in for some real suffering because life will take stuff away from you. And God forbid, people will leave too. Some betray, some will die. This is real. We dare not anchor to the things that are not permanent. There's one person who is the temple who's permanent. It's Jesus forever and ever who will someday wipe all the tears from our eyes who someday will make all the should-have-beens be. And how can it be unconditional? Well, the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he ripped it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this often in remembrance of me. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Shed for what? The forgiveness of your horrible, gross, disobedient sins. 
even the slightest sin, even the slightest sin says, my will has rights that yours does not, God. Even the slightest sin says, my will has rights that yours does not. From the slightest to the biggest, it's all got that. I will become. I know better than you. Jesus died to forgive you of all your sins. So now look, here's the good news. You don't have to walk around feeling insecure anymore. Relax. You're forgiven if you're a follower of Christ. His covenant that you're a part of has got grit. It endures. It's permanent. It's stable. And it's by which he gives mortals immortality. Because not only do we follow Jesus in his death, that's Lent. We're marching towards the cross. We're coming to Easter where Jesus, this temple, was raised from the dead, conquered death. And because of that, because we're in him, we conquer death also. We have eternal life. This is, why it's so, this is what Paul said, we are in Christ. It's huge, really big theological point to Paul. It means we're in David. It means we're now encompassed in this Davidic covenant. That's what that means. We, you are part of the Davidic covenant. That means your covenant is permanent. It's unconditional. No matter what you've done, no matter what you will do. Some of you, because I've been doing this for a long time, some of you are thinking right now, man, the things I've done, I can't, I can't believe I did it. Some of you, a year from now, you will have participated or done some things that you cannot believe that you, that you did. But God knows. He knows what you're going to do. He knows what you're going to think. He knows it all. And he says, but I will not remove my steadfast love from you. I will not renew, remove my steadfast love from you. I will not do it. I will not remove my chesed, my grace, my love. It's not dependent on you anymore. It's dependent on, my, on the, descent, the great descendant of David, the son of David. And because he rose from the dead, look, we can go to heaven. We are going to, we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ every day as we participate with what he's doing in our lives and we have a hope that's beyond this world. No matter what Putin decides to do, no matter how our leaders respond, no matter of all the stuff that's going on in our world, and it's intense, no doubt about it, it's intense. But for the Christian, we can say, yeah, it unnerves me a bit, but you know what? I know, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end I will see him on that day. We dare not hope in our politicians or our, even this most skilled or no matter what line of the aisle you're on, any man, any person, except for one man, the God-man, the greater than David, that is the son of David, Christians, we follow him. Do you understand that? We follow him before any party politic, before any other nation. We are looking for a city whose builder is God. And until then, every place, whether it's Seattle or Texas, sorry, Christine, every place is both, is both beautiful and broken. Every place, just in different ways. And every person, including when you look yourself in the mirror, you're both beautiful and broken. And he will not remove his steadfast love from you.
Here's my prayer. My prayer is that for some of you, this would be a breakthrough moment for you where you could know that your relationship with God is stable because you're a part of this Davidic covenant. And for those of you that struggle with sin and with yourself, maybe you've done some horrible things or maybe you realize that even your good things are filled with horrible motives, selfish motives. That there's hatred in your heart and resentment and unforgiveness. You can look at those things and you can know that, man, nothing separates me from the love of God. Because I'm in Jesus, because I'm in David, he will not remove his steadfast love from me. I think some, some people here desperately need to hear that. He will not remove his steadfast love from you. He will not remove, he has not removed his steadfast love from you, no matter what. And this gives us hope for the future. I hope for some of you that are scared about what's going on in the world right now. It is a scary thing. I dare not stand here and say, well, that stuff's not going to happen, because it might. But I can say there's an eternal kingdom that you are ushered into. For those of you that have lost loved ones who are in Christ, I can say you will see them again. 